this guy's just a consummate political operator. I think he's a complete hack of a scientist. Uh, I think he's a fraud in terms of uh, the way that he's conducted his career. And I, I think he's really like a bureaucratic bully that has used his power to enrich himself, enrich his friends, and establish himself as a um, at the top of the federal bureaucracy at the expense of scientific knowledge. I would even go so far as to say he deserves prison time. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Ricky Orpike, and I'm joined once again by Jonathan Astro. How are you? I'm overwhelmed as always, Ricky. Uh, I just can't. I just can't take these heavy hitters. Okay. Every time I get on the show, I, I'm 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 more humbled and embarrassed at my own stupidity because we've got another great guest today, uh, Philip Magnus. I can't wait. This guy is across uh, so much stuff, and you know, I mean, what have what have you ever done, Ricky? Is all I got to say. <laughs> hey, nothing compared to this guy. I think I think we're in for a, a, a teachable moment here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Let's do it. Philip Magnus is Senior Research Faculty and Research and Education Director at the American Institute for Economic Research. He is also a Research Fellow at the Independent Institute. He holds a PhD from George Mason University's School of Public Policy, and his writings have appeared in the the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Newsweek, Politico, Reason, and National Review. His books include Cracks in the Ivory Tower, The Moral Mess of Higher Education, What is Classical Liberal History?, Colonization After Emancipation, Lincoln and the Movement for Black Resettlement, and most recently, The 1619 Project, A Critique. Phil, welcome to The New Flash. Thanks for having me. Now, Phil, uh, John and I, we're a couple of Aussie guys. We've been through six lockdowns with some of the harshest restrictions in the world. Uh, We'd like to know, do lockdowns work and do they do what they're supposed to do? So... I've been studying this question for the past two years, uh, including digging deep into the epidemiology literature that existed before the uh, COVID pandemic, uh, so the pre-2020 literature. And my general assessment, uh, the conclusion I've come to, is there is no empirical evidence that lockdowns deliver on what they were claimed to do. Uh, there's no evidence that they uh, that regions that were under lockdown performed any better or worse, really. Uh, it's kind of just scattershot, the evidence, than regions that were not under lockdown. Uh, so when you consider that against the costs and harms that are imposed by lockdowns, and that's everything from shutting down schools for many years, it's uh, deferred medical treatments and elective procedures, it's deferred cancer screenings, plus the economic disruption of it, uh, on net, lockdowns turn out to be a, um, a catastrophic and disastrous toll that they exact on uh, on human beings for very little, if any, benefit whatsoever. That is is uh, not surprising to hear, <laughs> <laughs> but it seems there is an effort on the part of some people to change the narrative behind yeah, yeah. lockdown measures. So in terms of what happened and why, for instance, uh, here I have some objections that I hear over and over again. So maybe... Can I just fire these at you one at a time and, and then you can give me a quick response to each because you would have heard these two. So the first objection I hear from people to this day, they say, oh, we didn't know much about the virus. Right. <laughs> well, we actually did know quite a bit early on in the virus. So uh, one of the first major outbreaks that made it to the United States was in a nursing home in Washington state. And we discovered really early on that nursing homes were, were very vulnerable uh, we also discovered very early on from some of the cruise ship data that came out of Japan, uh, a few of the early uh, records that came out of Italy, 
that this virus has a much higher mortality rate for elderly people and people with pre-existing medical conditions than it does for uh, the average typical healthy younger person, uh, healthy like working age person. So uh, that data was known as early as February and March of 2020, and yet we proceeded as if it was uh, like a non-entity. There was even an interview where, where Bill Gates uh, just a couple weeks ago uh, jumped on the camera and, and he was making this claim. He was like, well, we didn't really know that this was a virus that uh, uh, was disproportionately harmful to the elderly. Uh, so we had to lock down. And it's like, wait a minute, where were you in, in February 2020? Uh, several of us were pointing this exact. Uh, statistic out to you, and uh, you, you ignored it. You called us. Uh, uh, you, you said we were ignoring the science and uh, and not taking this seriously enough at the time, even though it turned out that the evidence was proven. Well, that that particular clip has uh, caused uh, red rage on on Twitter. People are just like like hearing him say something that uh, I but we most of us knew two years ago. It's very frustrating. Uh, the second objection. It is well, we certainly heard this a lot in Australia. Was oh, we needed to either flatten the curve or stop the spread. Right. So it's two weeks to flatten the curve. Became two months to flatten the curve. Became two years to flatten the curve, and the curve's still not flat. So uh, that that was like a, a political slogan that was put forth. But anyone that studied the history of pandemics prior to 2020, including past instances where they used uh, quarantine measures, mass quarantine measures, uh, should have had the evidence that this was not going to play out the way that it was intended. Uh, flattening the curve was always based on theoretical computer models that had already assumed that result into their conclusions before they even run the model. You know, they, they, they build a, a model around parameters that say that if you lock everyone down, you reduce contacts at a fixed and specified rate and yes the virus goes away uh so it, it's like a, um, a a magical model thinking that's projected onto reality even though the model itself was flawed from the beginning so but in another in another sense you mentioned at the beginning there essentially people are parroting back a slogan that they've heard right so they're not even really thinking about possibly not thinking about what it actually means they're saying oh well i've heard this and it sounds pithy so this is why we're doing it right Right. And that comes from uh, the fact that these slogans are coming out of medical professionals and public health leaders, uh, the Anthony Fauci's of the world. Uh, and, you know, he really jumped onto the, uh, the into the limelight, uh, grabbed every camera screen that he could, uh, did every interview that he could to become the face of science. And it turns out he's just basically parroting talking points to the media that the media wants to hear. And we actually found direct evidence of this. So I did some Freedom of Information Act requests and we found that Fauci is basing his public pronouncements to the media on the media's own stories that have been sent to his inbox like the day before. So uh, he's reading their reports, parroting them back to them. And it, this is treated as if it's an authoritative scientific statement uh, where really, he, I mean, this is just a, a guy that's deeply ignorant and is taking his cues from the very same media that he is uh, uh, repeating it back to. Well, we, we, we are going to come back to Dr. Fauci. So we'll park him. We will park him for a few seconds. So a couple more objections because I even thought of another one. So here we go. Uh, we needed to buy time to stop the hospital system from collapse. Right, right. And this was uh, one of the claims that was made very early on all over the world. Uh, you know, they saw some of the problems in the Italian hospital system and they were like, oh, uh oh, this is going to happen in every country that there's an outbreak. 
Well, uh, there's two problems with it. The first one is that as soon as it turned out that the hospital systems were not collapsing as predicted, the narrative changed from we're no longer trying to save the hospital systems to now we're trying to avoid coronavirus deaths. So uh, it was kind of like the uh, uh, the foot in the door to get to a much more sweeping uh, set of regulations that lasted much longer than the hospital crisis. And then the second uh, point of evidence there that we have is that uh, um, the focus on hospitals actually caused us to miss the real point of vulnerability, which is the nursing homes early on. Uh, and th this is the notorious uh, episode that happened in New York and uh, a few of the surrounding states in the U.S. Uh, it also happened in, in England. It happened in several uh, countries across Europe that had really bad outbreaks in nursing homes. They were so focused on saving the hospital system that they made this completely boneheaded decision to use nursing home facilities as essentially like an overflow for elderly patients to convalesce as they're recovering from coronavirus. And that included in the U.S. case, the worst example was out of New York State. Uh, they passed a regulation that said nursing homes must admit COVID-positive patients that are coming out of the hospitals. And the whole idea here was, yeah, they're going to clear out hospital space because of this wave that's coming that never really happened. And really what it did is it moved the coronavirus uh, inside the doors of the nursing homes where it spreads to everybody. And the next thing you know, one in 10 of uh, U.S. nursing home residents is, is dead because of this thing. It seems that like there's been such hyperbole about what COVID will do out in the world. But that is one instance. Nursing homes is one instance where it is D uh, deadly and something we should Absolutely. keep out of there. So that is that seems like a total death sentence for those people. Um, so uh, there's two others. This one, th this is the, they resort to this one pretty late. They say, "Oh, well, we just needed to bridge the gap until the population could get vaccinated." Right, right. Well, there's the uh, you know we have the, the the changing arguments about vaccination. Uh, I, I've been pro-vax from the beginning. I think it's a great tool um, in terms of. Uh, of reducing the severity of the disease, but they exaggerated the um, the ability of vac uh, vaccination to basically stop uh, the disease itself. They exaggerated the ability of vaccination to prevent transmission and infection. It turns out it's not as good as it was promised uh, on that front. So uh, once you recognize that, that, that whole argument kind of falls away, the idea that we're just delaying until we have a vaccine. Uh, and then the second component there is uh, when you when you start looking at the statistics, it's back to that whole point about the disease being very severe for elderly people with complications. But uh, actually, you know, it's not a terribly severe disease uh, by contrast for younger people, for the majority of the working age population. So you're basically asking that portion of the population uh, to shoulder uh, the cost, the harms of a year or more of, uh, you know, basically being shut up in your homes and, uh, and kept out of a job, uh, kept from living life, kept from uh, kids getting educated uh, for a much smaller segment of the population that you aren't even really protecting anyway because you've uh, botched the whole nursing home uh, approach. Uh, you So it's a uh, uh, it's like a fanciful claim of what could have been done uh, that is not based in any uh, form of reality, whether it's the execution of it or the promises of what the vaccines delivered. Now, the final one I have, because this just came to me, and because this has come up recently when I've, you know, been talking to people about masks and lockdowns, and you know, you said at the beginning of this that when you plot it all on 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 a graph, it doesn't tell you much, and therefore you're not allowed to say that it does it does work, right? And so usually people throw their hands up and they say, "Oh well." It's better to be safe than sorry. 
Right. <laughs> right. I mean, I mean, it's uh, it's better to be safe than sorry from uh, giant meteor strikes that are going to, to destroy the planet. But uh, these are extremely rare events. I mean, if you take that logic to its extreme, uh, we'd all just be like sheltering in caves for the rest of our lives. Uh, risk does exist in the world out there. And unless you can provide clear empirical evidence that what you're doing to abate the risk uh, is warranted vis-a-vis the costs and harms and trade-offs, uh, it, it seems like the empirical case for that just disappears. Mm. Well, I just wanted to just ask you a, a little bit more about the hospital system here. Like um, the the thing I hear the most from colleagues and, and, and friends and family is that uh, we needed to buy time to stop the hospital system from collapse. Now, uh, were there any hospital systems in the U.S. that actually did collapse? I mean, did we ever see people dying in the car parks of of, of hospitals? Like, we haven't seen it here in Australia. And in Australia, we you know, we, we, we increased our capacity in terms of ICU, and, and, and apparently none of that was needed. So what was it like in the U.S.? Uh, so very similar cases. Everyone panicked about the hospitals being overrun. They had all these models and charts and graphs that predicted, like, uh, it was imminent. I think there was one case even in March 2020 where a, uh, a former senior official in, in the U.S. Uh, health policy world went on TV and said, we have 10 days till our entire hospital system collapses and everyone panicked. Uh, and they took all these measures. They, in New York City, which was the uh, probably the, the epicenter of the first major U.S. outbreak, uh, they built um, temporary hospitals in the convention center there. They sailed uh, a ship from the U.S. Navy, a hospital ship, into New York Harbor and parked it there. And then over the course of the next few weeks, they found that basically nobody was coming to these uh, overflow facilities. They were sitting empty. Uh, I think the Navy ship had maybe a couple dozen uh, admittances onto it. And uh, it was kind of like a, so the crisis actually went away and that the ship sailed off very quietly. Uh, and it was it was never really needed. And the only points where they actually did find some strain on the hospital system, it turned out to be caused by regulatory issues. So there were some individual hospitals that like in the neighborhood uh, had a lot of cases come through and there, there's more cases than can be admitted into the ICU. Uh, and what they found out is they couldn't take those uh, patients to the, the hospital three blocks down the street because the union contract for the ambulance prevented that company from servicing a different hospital. Uh, so it's, it's stupid, ridiculous regulatory things caused temporary clogs in a few isolated hospitals, but the system became nowhere near to becoming overrun as was predicted. So then let's talk about lockdowns in general. In, in, from your research uh, and the work you've done, who, who did lockdowns impact the most and how? First and foremost, it impacted the least well-off uh, people that are in, in lower income stratuses. Uh, these are people that are in the, the service industries, those who lost their jobs because they can no longer be a waiter at a restaurant or a bartender uh, or a hotel clerk. Uh things that uh, are, are directly affected by the lockdown shutdowns because they were deemed non-essential businesses. Those people lost their jobs. Uh, they were out of work for long periods of time. And these industries, in many cases, still have not recovered uh, two years later. 
We also found very early on that some of the states, because the U.S. has a federal system, there was a wide variation between what the individual states did. Some like New York and California went into heavy lockdown over and over and over again. Some like Florida and Texas reopened really early on and only had maybe one major lockdown. Uh, Some uh, like South Dakota never even closed. And what you find is that there's wide variation in the employment markets over the first year or so of the coronavirus, uh, that there's a, a massive unemployment crisis in places like California and New York, and then next to nothing in places like Florida and South Dakota that didn't lock down as hard or didn't lock down at all. Uh, but it was really the least well-off that are hit the first and foremost by the economic impact. Uh, The second thing that we're seeing on this is the school closures. And there's a new study that came out of Harvard just earlier this week uh, where they compared uh, uh, the the lags in uh, educational performance among uh, uh, well-to-do and then uh, less well-off students. And they they especially focused on uh, students from racial minority groups, historically disadvantaged groups. And they found that the lockdowns have imposed uh, uh, like serious detrimental educational harms on the progress of those students, their performances in in the classroom and on standardized testing. Uh, But there was one exception. The states that reopened their school systems early on, and they singled out Texas and Florida again, uh, there was no educational gap. But the states that maintain lockdowns, there's a huge educational gap that falls heavily upon historically disadvantaged groups. And the third area is really in the first wave of lockdowns, There was heavy-handed enforcement that accompanied those lockdowns. Uh, In other words, the police were arresting people on the street for venturing outside. Uh, You all know this probably firsthand from uh, your own experience. Uh, And especially in places like New York City and the surrounding cities and uh, in New Jersey, uh, they had uh, several hundred people were handed tickets or fines or, uh, or were arrested for violating lockdowns. And all the empirical data that we have on that shows that it overwhelmingly targeted black and Hispanic neighborhoods. Uh, It wasn't uh, upper middle class or upper class white people that were uh, uh, hauled before the court or asked to pay a fine for violating the lockdowns. It wasn't the fancy parts of Manhattan that got penalized. It was uh, the poorer neighborhoods in the the, the surrounding areas. And I I think there was one study that came out of uh, one of the boroughs of, of New York City and uh, they had about 40 people that uh, were arrested in the first week or so for uh, uh, violating lockdowns. And out of those 40, I think 35 were African-American, four were Hispanic, and one was white. Uh, so there's a clear disproportionate enforcement that's targeting historically disadvantaged groups. And do, just do you think that there's anything to this idea that there was also a, an upward transfer of wealth to to uh, you know, the people that profited from whatever it is, Zoom, PPE, or even, is there anything to that idea? There, there is absolutely evidence of this. I mean, uh, the coronavirus, uh, it may, uh, the, the pandemic response itself may end up being one of the great uh, tragedies of the 21st century in terms of its, uh, um, the, the inequality that it fostered. Uh, you had an entire economic class, I refer to them kind of jokingly as the Zoom class. Those are the people that are able to work from home, that they uh, they no longer go into the office because they can log into their computer and hold the same meeting. Uh, and, you know, there's everything from uh, journalists, reporters disproportionately fall in the Zoom class, college professors, uh, upper middle class working professionals, people that would be in a white collar office building job under normal times were able to convert 
their entire work life into meetings over the computer. And, you know, that's great if you're, uh, you're, you're in that situation, you, uh, you dial into your, your work meeting over the computer, you teach your class remotely, uh, you, you conduct journalism, you write and file your articles remotely, and then lunch comes around, and what do you do? You enter in Uber Eats, and then there's a, uh, a pizza or a steak or something that delivers at your door. You have no contact with that person. Uh, it's time to get groceries. You go online, log on to Amazon, and you order uh, Amazon Prime delivery, and your groceries arrive. Uh, and there was a disconnect that emerged around these people. It's like they're, they're living this life. I said, well, hey, lockdown's not so bad. I'm, I'm doing fine at home. I'm turning on Netflix and watching movies every night. And uh, it's really not disrupting me, but they're not paying attention to the guy that's actually delivering the groceries or, or the Uber driver that's bringing your meals in. Or it did become are- like the Eloy and the Morlocks from the time, the time machine. <laughs> It really you know? is. And uh, Bill Gates, I think, is the king of the ELA. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, and it's a divide. It's a working class versus the Zoom class. For sure. Well, I, I experienced this just the other day. Like I, I went to the GP just for a, a very minor thing. And and my, my GP was, was lamenting the fact that lockdowns were over. She kind of liked being at home and, right. you know, being isolated and being able to work on your computer and you know, I mean, I, I didn't say this, but, you know, I, I, there were some things I could have said to her, you know. <laughs> uh, but uh, if we can turn our focus a little bit to the modeling for just a moment, yeah, can yeah. you give us an idea of the modeling used to advocate for lockdown measures? Where did the numbers come from and, and, and how do they stack up to, to what we know now? Right, right. So the most famous and influential model by far was this uh, piece of work that came out of Imperial College London by Neil Ferguson. And there's been a bit of revisionist history around this. They're trying to downplay it because the model turned out to perform so terribly that no one really wants to own it anymore. But you can go back to the front page of the New York Times in March 2020, and they have a glowing report that says, inside the model that uh, that uh, converted opinion toward lockdown. And you can go to Nature, the, the scientific journal, and it's a, a deep dive into the genius of Neil Ferguson, the guy that modeled uh, the coronavirus and convinced the world we need to take this one seriously. Uh, so this was all over the press at the time, uh, and it was uh, by every indication that Ferguson's model was the main one that everyone tried to replicate and, and copy in countries uh, around the world. So background of the model is in uh, uh, early March 2020, uh, Imperial College London begins running a computer simulation of the coronavirus. Uh, and this is based on an older study that they resurrected from 2006 that was a simulation of a pandemic influenza outbreak, a, a serious severe flu outbreak. And the model uh, basically, what it does is it's a, it's a form of um, uh, empirical study referred to as agent-based modeling. And what they do is they, they, they simulate human interactions, human contacts under certain circumstances and scenarios. And then they vary the parameters around those scenarios. So they assume that uh, like a normal day, you may interact with, uh, with 20 people. And then each, each of those has a probability associated with it of whether you transmit the virus to the people you interact. And if you run that simulation in a, in a real neat and tidy way, you can get a projected outcome of how quickly the virus spreads. Uh, so then they put uh, restrictions in place and they say, OK, well, what if we close the schools? Well, this reduces certain types of contacts by 50 percent. 
and uh, those contacts go away, uh, then the virus reduces uh, by X amount and they run the simulation. Well, what if we shut businesses? What if we shut uh, 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 public trans uh, transport? If you uh, if you go through all the different uh, comparable scenarios of, of uh, levels of restriction that you can put in place, you end up basically shutting down human contact almost entirely, and then supposedly the virus stops transmitting. Uh, so that's the premise behind it. Uh, Ferguson, the guy that, that was the lead modeler, actually gave several interviews where he uh, openly uh, stated that he got the idea for this from the late 1990s video game, The Sims. Uh, the Sim City style uh, stuff, and it actually, people that looked at his computer code, it also looked a, an awful lot like late 1990s computer code uh, that was running this thing. So we resurrected it in 2020. Uh, you know, two decades later, uh, runs this model, and it predicts catastrophe worldwide. It predicts. Uh, so the first version came out for the United States and Great Britain. Uh, Great Britain was supposed to have over 500,000 deaths. The U.S. up to 2.2 million deaths. And the key thing here was that these deaths were supposed to happen all in a very sudden wave that was just like two or three months ahead of us. Uh, so both of those models peaked, I think, in late June 2020. And it's a very sharp peak. And then the, then the pandemic burns out and goes away. Uh, so uh, massive wave of death, almost instantaneously uh, predicted by these models, unless we take all these measures to uh, um, uh, to stem off the pandemic, uh, according to what the model predicted. And then uh, about uh, 10 days later, they published a, a version of this model for almost every country on Earth. Uh, I think there's nearly 200 different scenarios that they simulated for all the different countries. And it, too, predicted similar types of catastrophe. So everyone panics, adopts this model as the basis for uh, their uh, coronavirus response. Ferguson himself meet, meets with Boris Johnson and Downing Street. Uh, turns out Ferguson was also positive with the coronavirus when he went and met the prime minister. And a week later, Boris Johnson's in the hospital. I'll let you put two and two together. Uh, you know, this guy's like a disaster artist of, uh, of uh, his own personal behavior and performance. Uh, the, so it's quite quite the irony that the guy that um, uh, had the catastrophe model actually caused a super spreader event when he tried to take it to the government. But nonetheless, they listened to him and they copied him over and over again. We got multiple waves of lockdowns. Uh, it didn't really do anything. What I did with his model is I took that international one that, that simulated almost 200 countries and tested its one-year performance. So in March 2021, lined up to what it predicted for each of the scenarios. And they had like a, a light touch scenario, um, um, kind of a lockdown scenario that most uh, people did. Then a China-style 75% reduction in all contacts, lock everyone in their home scenario. And then a do-nothing scenario. And it turned out that in almost every single country, uh, they overshot their predicted deaths by absurd amounts, I think uh, thousands of percentage points too high in some of the worst cases. And I think of all the different countries that they considered, um, you know, what, one of the main models, the most realistic of the models, uh, they overshot their death projections in 189 out of 189 countries. Uh, so, so this thing just performed terribly. I mean, it's, uh, it's scientific junk. It is, it should be discrediting of this guy's career. And yet for some reason he's still treated as like this expert on lockdowns. Well, I mean, is there, you sort of, already sort of answered this, but so is there's no contrition at all from these people that created no. this, uh, these wildly inflated models. Uh, and why are they only doing this one model? And aren't there other people out there 
modeling? Were there other models? Yeah, there absolutely are other models, and some of them are are a bit more conservative, and they were actually more realistic. Uh, But it it was the alarmist one. It's the catastrophe one that grabs the headlines and empowers politicians, and politicians love it because it's an excuse to act. It's an excuse to flex their muscle. Anthony Fauci loved the Ferguson model because it gave him um, all the answers that he wanted to justify his own continued public presence and his ability to rule by decree. So the lockdowns don't work. We've we've talked about we've discussed this. Um, yet there still seems to be a chill in the air when it comes to reporting this kind of thing. So I'm desperately trying not to give into conspiracies here. Uh, at least before Elon Musk takes over on Twitter. <laughs> uh, but what are we to make of the fact that the ineffectiveness of lockdowns is it, these restrictions is treated as forbidden knowledge? Why is it forbidden and why wouldn't it be better to know one way or the other if something worked or not? Well, I I think a part of it comes from the type of people who self-select into journalism careers. Uh, They tend to be of the political left. They tend to to believe in a a very expansive role for government in in managing our lives. And uh, quite a few of them view the medical uh, side of, of society uh, healthcare as a major area for government intervention. And when you have uh, decades upon decades of people self-selecting into journalism careers to where it becomes kind of a political echo chamber, uh, where there's only one uh, viewpoint that is seen as the truth and everything else is, is just disregarded, uh, well, that's what gets elevated. That's what gets uh, put on the front page of the newspapers. Uh, same thing with big tech, as, as big tech corporations have, uh, have really kind of structured and in some cases even purged their workforces to only represent one viewpoint. Uh, you get uh, political alarmism that emerges around a certain narrative, and that narrative has been very strongly in favor of supporting lockdowns, supporting these aggressive public health measures, because that happened to align with a a command and control style response to the pandemic uh, that was politically palatable to them. Well, what what would be your proposed lockdown alternatives? Yeah, so uh, this this comes back to, you know, my own work at um, AIER, as uh, we were deeply involved in a, a conference that produced something called the Great Barrington Declaration. And what this was, was in October 2020, it proposed an alternative to lockdowns uh, that we called focus protection. And focus protection was you identify the points of vulnerability. So places like nursing homes, uh, places like hospitals and medical establishments that, yes, you do need to take some extra caution to uh, prevent viral spread in those, uh, those circumstances. And yet at the same time, uh, most people in common everyday life, uh, people that are not in the vulnerable populations, it's, it's basically go about your lives, live as normally, you know, take precautions, wash your hands, use hand sanitizer, uh, those types of things. But at the same time, uh, there's no reason to be locking down uh, like people in their 20s and 30s that are perfectly healthy and telling them that they can't go to work. Uh, so the focus protection alternative actually has some, some merit behind it in the modeling that was neglected by people like Neil Ferguson. If you read the original code and the original model he based everything on, uh, he announces outright, he says, we don't know how to model nursing homes, so we're just going to pretend that they don't exist. This is just a general population model. And to me, that that's that's like, uh, <laughs> you know, that's a, a dereliction of scientific duty to proceed uh, with a model that isn't even suited for the one area that you happen to know uh, that this thing is a major problem. Uh, So 
some uh, some empirical evidence has come out since then where they've compared different studies uh, in different countries on how well they performed at shielding their nursing homes. And it turns out there's quite a bit of international variation. Uh, some countries actually did take measures that focused on the nursing homes. And it turned out that, uh, you know, lo and behold, if you do that, uh, uh, the nursing home death rates were much lower in those countries than others that uh, that had like these forced admission policies like the United States or that neglected it. Uh, you know, unfortunately, I think Sweden actually performed pretty poorly early on in its nursing homes. It didn't recognize the vulnerability. So uh, they, they took a lot of flack. Uh, for a nursing home policy that was real similar to the United States or Great Britain or Belgium, some of these other countries that did very poorly. And yet when they figured it out, when they started to take some measures, uh, Sweden actually started to perform better over the uh, remainder of the pandemic, even though it was remaining open in uh, the rest of society. So, uh, yeah, I think there's quite a bit of merit to the focus protection idea. One idea that I floated early on was, uh, and this was based on a few private nursing homes in the United States did this, is they rented recreational vehicles and parked them in their parking lots and paid their staff extra to live on site so they aren't going out into society uh, and contracting the virus and bringing it in to their patients. Uh, it was basically a uh, pay them for the duration of the wave of the pandemic, and uh, we can isolate on site. And the, the, the point that I always made is if you did that at every nursing home in the world, every nursing home in America, every nursing home in New York State even, uh, that would be immensely less expensive than uh, the cost of the lockdowns. And yet uh, these were things we were unwilling to try other than a few isolated instances because we were so focused on this heavy-handed one-size-fits-all lockdown strategy. Well, how, how, how do you think the claims or recommendations from the Great Barrington Declaration hold up two years on? Yeah. Well, so, you know, we, we look at it um, constantly looking back. Uh, so the, the first thing to note is that this, uh, the declaration was made before we knew that we were going to have a vaccine or when we knew we were going to have a vaccine. That came out in December uh, 2020. Uh, the declaration was two months earlier, and it was written in a world where there was quite a bit of uncertainty. Um, I think we realized very early on that once vaccines were made available, this is a potential game changer uh, because it obviated the case for these continued lockdowns. Um, so, you know, I look back at the Great Barrington Declaration and I, I see, um, you know, a very clear point of advantage. I guess I call it uh, victory in the sense that uh, uh, most countries have de facto converted to its recommendations to not uh, uh, adopt these heavy handed lockdowns anymore. Although that was like another year's worth of a, a, a fight, a year's slog to make that case that lockdowns are, are just not an effective instrument. Uh, so I, I think most of the world, except for places like China, have basically now adopted the Great Barrington Declaration's recommendation that no, we don't need to lock down. Yes, we should take uh, reasonable cautions around vulnerable areas like nursing homes and healthcare facilities. Uh, and yet at the same time, we should not be focusing on disrupting lives. And you pair that with the vaccination campaigns, although that's a, that's been a mess in itself because, uh, you know, I've argued early on that they've bungled the rollout of the vaccines from day one, uh, basically because they made it a centralized government thing. Uh, they, they tried to select which populations got it first, 
And then they uh, they had vacillating messages about whether these things are safe or not. They suspended the, the Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca vaccines really early on without really thinking through that, hey, if you, if you do this, all of a sudden you cause a panic that undermines vaccine confidence. Uh, so all of that played out uh, uh, pretty disastrously. Uh, but, you know, I look back at the Great Barrington Declaration, and I, th- and I think historically it is going to be vindicated as one of the few statements that was made during the peak of the pandemic uh, that actually tried to bring us back to our senses. Yes, well, we are both signatories of that document. Uh, <laughs> so thank you. Uh, so let's let's turn our attention to the man himself, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Yes. Uh, I suspect, um, you know, I think some of our uh, Australian listeners uh, may need a little bit of uh, an intro. So certainly we've seen a lot of him, but who is this man pre-pandemic? And 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 because he was involved in in uh, some of the work around the the AIDS crisis. Absolutely, yes? absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So Anthony Fauci is a government bureaucrat. He's the highest paid bureaucrat in the entire United States government. And he's been there for 40 years. He's the head of, the, of one of the, uh, the main agencies in the National Institutes of Health. Uh, and as the administrative head, he controls all the grant money. He controls the bureaucracy. Um, I liken him to the NIH's version of J. Edgar Hoover. So if you look at your American history books, J. Edgar Hoover was this guy that was the head of the American FBI for something like 40 or 50 years, basically from when the agency was founded until the day he died, he was the head of the FBI and was was a really feared man in the government, like a, a consummate political operator that survived several presidential administrations, uh, was always seen as like the, the locus of power. And then after he's out of office, after he's dead, uh, they start digging in his files and they find uh, like like all sorts of just horrendous dirt on this guy. Uh, For example, he uh, authorized a campaign to send threatening letters to Martin Luther King. He uh, he did just just a really awful political operator, not this uh, uh, this mastermind of fighting criminality, but actually just a, a, a sleazy, scummy bureaucrat. And I think Fauci's career has taken that exact same trajectory. You know, here's a guy that arrived on the scene at the NIH in the early 1980s, uh, has um, installed himself in this position of power. And then every time there's a medical emergency, what does he do? He walks in front of the camera and gives these uh, pronouncements as if he's, uh, uh, you know, the authority on high. And if everyone just listens to him, they'll solve the problem. First time he did this was, of course, the HIV AIDS uh, epidemic in the early 1980s when this new disease bursts onto the scene. No one knows what it is. They, they know it's very deadly and everyone's scared about it. Well, what did Fauci do is he went on television and he went into the medical journals and he spread alarmism. Uh, there's a really infamous incident in, uh, I think it was in May of 1983, as this new disease is being studied, where uh, he published a paper in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And this paper just had crazy, wild speculation that AIDS could be transmitted from a relative by sitting around the, di- the dinner table, uh, by sharing forks and spoons, uh, by uh, household contact, uh, potentially even by like sitting next to the, a person that's infected on a bus. And uh, what it turned out is he made this pronouncement in the medical journal after misreading a couple of studies. There was a um, uh, there were a pair of studies that had discovered um, AIDS cases in infants, 
And, you know, you ask us as a scientist, uh, you, you see, how does AIDS get into an infant? Uh, well, the most obvious explanation is it was passed from the mother at birth. Uh, that the mother was infected and the, and the baby got it. And that turns out to be the actual uh, source of it. But he sees these cases and he misinterprets them as, well, the infant must be living in a household where, or maybe the uncle was uh, sharing the same uh, uh, dinner bowl and, uh, and passed AIDS through that. So uh, and he, he doesn't make a, an affirmative pronouncement. He wildly speculates that, well, it could be caused by transmission around the, the table or sitting in the living room in your house. And what does the media do? Well, they pick this up and they run with it. And there's headlines that say NIH uh, um, authority says that AIDS can be transmitted through household contact. And there's a massive panic in the United States because of this. Uh, all caused by Anthony Fauci. Uh, you know, he, he is the one that gave the scientific authority behind this wild speculation. People are already on edge. And then the next thing you know, you have uh, uh, kind of like the religious right uh, uh, segment of the U.S. society, the Pat Buchanan types and uh, and the, the moral majority, the Jerry Falwell people that uh, that come forth and says, well, we need to show, uh, shut down all the gay bars. We need to shut down the establishments where, where this uh, sinful behavior spreads because of the AIDS epidemic. And they're, and they're citing in their papers, Anthony Fauci is their authority. Uh, although it turns out he's completely wrong by this. He never expresses any contrition. He just kind of like quietly fades into the background as all of this stuff is, is debunked and just shifts his message to uh, other areas of the AIDS epidemic and tries to eventually position himself as, as, as like the hero, the person that, uh, that brought funding to, uh, to study and discover the problem of AIDS. Uh, so this is a recurring pattern across his entire career is there's a public health crisis. He appears in the media, makes these grandiose pronouncements from a seeming position of authority. He turns out to be scientifically wrong, and yet he never faces any repercussion. He just shifts his message and kind of fades into the background of the original message and then comes out with a new rebranded version for the media. And, and you know, they treat him like a celebrity. They treat him as someone who is pronouncing from uh, from high. And we saw this in the coronavirus pandemic. So uh, in, in, um, in early 2020, uh, it was the day after the Wuhan region of China went into lockdown. Fauci goes on CNN and says, this will never happen in the United States. I can never see this in Los Angeles or New York City. Uh, uh, lockdowns don't work, was basically his message to CNN. A month and a half later, he's championing the things based on the Neil Ferguson model. So this is a guy that just constantly reinvents himself. Uh, I started referring to him as flip-flop Fauci throughout the pandemic because Every month or so, he had an entirely new message that contradicted where he was a, a month earlier, and yet no contrition, no recognition that he erred. It was always, uh, well, this was part of the master plan. I think uh, there was one case he even got caught on national television lying about what he thought the threshold rate for vaccination was uh, supposed to be to achieve uh, herd immunity. And, and he, uh, rather than admit the lie or say, hey, well, I was wrong, he says, oh, well, uh, I was basically deceiving you for your own good because I knew all along the real threshold and I was afraid that people were not going to uh, to meet it unless they were alarmed enough. So I intentionally stoked alarm was the, the gist of his message there. Uh, so, yeah, this, this guy's just a consummate political operator. I think he's a complete hack of a scientist. Uh, I think he's a fraud in terms of uh, the way that he's conducted his career. And I, I think he's really like a bureaucratic bully that has used his power to 
to enrich himself, enrich his friends, and establish himself as a um, at the top of the federal bureaucracy at the expense of scientific knowledge. So yeah, this is a guy that I would even go so far as to say he deserves prison time. He deserves an investigation, congressional inquiries to see how he misbehaved, how he manipulated public trust during the pandemic. Uh, are you hopeful that 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 will happen one day? I uh, you know I've got um, I, I don't want to be predictive on this, but I, I I think if the next wave of the elections turns out the way that seems to be heading, uh, and there are uh, so the Republicans uh, may con- uh, gain control of one or both houses of Congress, in which case I think there will be serious congressional investigations of Fauci, and I don't think it's going to be pretty what they uncover. I look forward to seeing uh, the next installment of a, is it uh, uh, is it Rand Paul? Is, is he the, Rand the one? Paul who's... Is, uh, it seems to be on, on top of that, and he, he'll be in the know, wings, waiting for waiting for the power. I'll, I'll look forward to that. So, uh, your you and your colleagues at AIR, we you mentioned this before, filed the Freedom of Information Act to Absolutely. look into emails between Anthony Fauci and former director of the NIH, Francis Collins, uh, who was also involved in the Human Genome Project. So, can you tell can you tell us what you what you found in the, in those emails? Uh, so, this was a stunning re- revelation for us. You know, we we uh, published the Great Barrington Declaration. This was in early October two thousand twenty. And it immediately goes viral, um, far beyond what we ever expected. You know, it's the next morning, the three scientists that drafted it uh, are getting media calls from national television saying, can you come on our show? And they're as stunned as we are. Uh, The website, we thought we're going to get like 10,000 signatures. And it turns out to be like hundreds of thousands of signatures. Uh, So it went viral the first few days. You know, we're, we're, we're soaring in terms of the publicity beyond our wildest dreams. And then the media narrative very suddenly and sharply turned against it. Uh, we started getting attacked. Uh, we had uh, you know, reporters that were trying these stunts of submitting fake signatures, uh, which we actually traced to a, uh, uh, a reporter in the UK had uh, manipulated this to generate a story. It's like he submits a fake signature and then he writes his own story about his own fake signature. Uh, and we had to go through and like actually screen and clean those out uh, as a result. Those signatures uh, are mentioned in the Wikipedia entry, actually, absolutely, prominently absolutely. As, as part of what looks like a smear campaign. It was a hundred percent a smear campaign. Like we caught the guy red-handed doing this, traced his IP address, everything, and yet they run the story anyway. Uh, so similar things like that. There's a. It turns out to be there's a very heavily coordinated. Uh, set of talking points that seem to be coming from all of the same three or four scientists. They're saying, oh, this will never work. These people are crazy. They're fringe epidemiologists. Uh, and we're, we're kind of sitting there thinking, well, what the hell is going on here? This seems like a, a, a pretty heavy-handed pushback. So um, a few months later, uh, we filed a Freedom of Information Act request with the U.S. government uh, just to see what's going on internally in the conversations between Fauci and Collins and their, uh, uh, their subordinates at the NIH. And it turns out that about four days after the Great Barrington Declaration came out, Francis Collins sends an email around to uh, his top deputies, including Fauci and some of the other bureaucrats that are there. And uh, it says, these fringe epidemiologists are undermining the case for a lockdown, referring to the Great Barrington Declaration signers. Uh, He says, these fringe epidemiologists, they even have a Nobel Prize winner that signed on to them, and he's complaining about this. And then then the line that's the giveaway, uh, he says, what we need is a quick and devastating public takedown of these scientists basically a hatchet job. He called on government uh, authorities to put the word out to smear these people. 
And this is a directive that goes to Fauci. It's a directive that goes to all the other people in the NIH. We, uh, we also discovered from a different route that the UK had done something very similar. Uh, uh, so uh, the, the head of the Wellcome Trust over there, who's kind of like the, the UK's equivalent of Fauci, the major funder, uh, he and uh, Dominic Cummings, who's uh, the political operative of Boris Johnson, uh, they conferred and had a conversation where, where they basically agreed that, yes, we need a media campaign to take down the Great Barrington Declaration. Uh, so almost simultaneously, this is going on in two major governments and two major uh, press outputs. Uh, over the next few days, we find that Fauci starts appearing on TV to denounce the Great Barrington Declaration, as does Collins, as do some of these other figures in the NIH. Uh, but uh, there's a really interesting pattern that emerges. When they're going on TV, they are not making scientific arguments. Rather, what they are doing is they start to parrot back political editorials that uh, partisan media sources had run against the Great Barrington Declaration. And we found these in Fauci's emails because uh, he would circulate them. He says, well, here are my talking points for today's media appearance. This afternoon I'm going on CNN or something. Uh, and then he circulates an email with a, a copy paste of this, uh, this article. The first one was uh, uh, from Wired Magazine, that great scientific authority. Um, he copies and pastes and says, well, I found a, a counter argument against the Great Barrington Declaration. And you read this article. I mean, it's the most boneheaded uh, assessment of the pandemic probably in, in, in history. The argument of Wired Magazine, this is October 2020, he says, well, the Great Barrington Declaration is arguing with the past. We no longer have lockdowns. They aren't coming back. Uh, they're arguing against a straw man from six months ago uh, from the spring. So, again, October 2020. A month later, the whole world goes back into lockdown again. Uh, so not only that, he's using bad sources. Then the second one is, is like this crazy piece from The Nation magazine, which is this far left uh, um, outlet in the United States. And it's a bunch of political screeds. And what he's doing is he's taking political op-eds. Then he goes on CNN or something and announces the talking points from the political op-eds as if they are his own scientific judgment. And this is a recurring pattern with the guy. So he takes the media's talking points from themselves and really the, the partisan far left media's talking points, repackages them as scientific pronouncements and parrots them back to them. And then they report it as, oh, well, Anthony Fauci uh, has affirmed that our judgment is correct. Wow. It's, uh, it's, it sounds like a feedback loop, doesn't it? It, it is absolutely you know. a feedback loop. Wow. Well, uh, why is it that it took a, a think tank to look into these emails and, and not say, I don't know, the New York Times, you know, like why has mainstream media not looked into any of this? Surely it makes for some good headlines, you know, isn't that what, what, what newspapers want? Right. And, and when we discovered them, so we released these emails, we put them up on our website and I tweeted it out to the world. And, you know, within 24 hours, it's, it's like a headline in the Wall Street Journal. Major media outlets that were at least on the somewhat sensible side, and the journal's been decent on that, and a few others started looking into it, and they they were like, "Well, where did this come from? This is this is pretty damning. Uh, this talks to misbehavior at the top levels of the government." But the media itself had lost any curiosity about that because they've been just slavishly uh, repeating ta uh, Fauci's talking points. Right, right back to him. I mean, they, they built the cult of personality around this guy as if he can do no wrong. They write arguments 
that are designed to insulate him, designed to they, – they basically run interference for him whenever he comes into scrutiny. And, you know, the guy is not uh, the deft political – uh, communicator that he likes to think of himself as. He goes on TV and he says all sorts of boneheaded missteps and 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 pronouncements that uh, are you're leave, they leave you scratching your head. I was like, what did that guy just say? Uh, that's that's scientifically crazy. And the media comes in and then they'll run like a fact check saying, well, well, Fauci was taken out of context or misinterpreted, uh, and here's the real truth behind it. Um, so, so I think what, what we've really saw is early in the pandemic, the media anointed Fauci and he cultivated this as uh, their main source first to counter Donald Trump because, you know, you know they, uh, I, I'm not a huge Trump fan, but the media went into derangement mode and wanted to, uh, to treat Trump as like the, uh, the ultimate evil of the pandemic, even though Trump went on board with the Neil Ferguson model and enacted lockdowns and, uh, and did everything that they wanted. But they tried to present Fauci as the, the foil to Trump, and therefore Fauci was the hero. Uh, Fauci could do no wrong. They built a cult of personality around him. And that means that there was no incentive whatsoever to dig into his own misbehavior, his own misconduct in the way that he handled the pandemic. So what are we also to make of Francis Collins' role here from the NIH? I've had a lot of trouble matching these emails and his silly COVID songs that he sings with his reputable, what I'm to understand is reputable work in the Human Genome Project. So where does he fit into the grand scheme of things? Absolutely. You know, Collins came into government uh, uh, from a very different route from Fauci. He was not a guy that's been there for 40 years. Uh, he was tapped as a scientist externally that had scientific accomplishment. He, Human Genome Project is his main thing. And he's brought in to lead the agency. Um, I think in the uh, the time that he was there in office, he became politicized in the, the same way. I mean, he, he was pulled into Fauci's orbit, and I think this was a this is a real disappointment. It's kind of a shock because Collins, unlike Fauci before the pandemic, had a very high reputation as kind of a uh, an independent minded scientist. You know, Fauci was a controversial figure before the pandemic, even though the media loved him, uh, especially his. Uh, uh, mishandling of the AIDS crisis, like the uh, the gay community in the United States used to hold picket signs in front of his office denouncing him in the 1980s and early 90s. Uh, but Collins had been seen as like this independent scientist, an upholder of, uh, of science above politics. And then when he gets in office, he cultivates himself as uh, as an image of like this folksy doctor, the guy that goes on and he pu- pulls out his guitar and he sings the coronavirus songs. Uh, and, and they're songs like children's songs, Puff the Magic Dragon. Uh, <laughs> reset the- they are dreadful. They're not good. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, and he, he kind of cultivates the, this image of him as like this aloof, uh, uh, probably sincere and well-meaning, but kind of a... a Mr. Rogers a, of COVID. Mr. Rogers of COVID, exactly. Uh, and, and yet what you see behind the scenes is he's a cold and calculating political operative. Yeah. He is sending out directives saying, we need to denounce these scientists. We need to discredit them and smear them. Uh, to his subordinates. So I, I think it's a really shocking revelation about Collins because it shows there's a, a, um, a two-sidedness to him uh, between his public image and then than his uh, political operative um, work. We interviewed Mary Graybar last week about the 1619 Project, and we received a, a pretty comprehensive overview of, of the project, uh, and our listeners can go back and, and find that interview if they're interested. But you've written a whole book debunking this historical reimagining, which Mary right. has cited in, in her work. Can you outline your problems with the 1619 Project? 
So I focused uh, very heavily on the economic side of the 1619 project. And, and you know, I, I say this, there are problems throughout it, uh, but there are really two essays out of the original 12 or so that came out in the New York Times that uh, are the serious problems. The first one is Nicole Hannah-Jones' overview essay, and that's where the media has been focused. And, yeah, it has uh, erroneous historical claims, uh, as Mary, I'm sure, uh, walked through about the way the American Revolution was fought. She tries to recast it as a pro-slavery movement uh, and so forth. But the overarching message is she's doing this for a reason. She's trying to build up a case for slavery reparations and progressive redistribution of wealth in the modern day, uh, using history as basically the weapon for that. And the tool that, uh, that she enlists on this is actually economic. So the second essay, which has received less attention but was the focus of my work, was written by a Princeton sociologist named Matthew Desmond. And the title of the essay is like, Slavery and Capitalism. And his basic thesis is that free market capitalism is wedded at the hip to the history of slavery. American wealth in the 19th century derived from slavery in the cotton plantations. And therefore, wealth today is tainted by slavery, which fits into Nicole Hannah-Jones' narrative uh, if wealth is tainted by slavery, wealth can be seized in redistribution, and that's now a matter of justice, economic justice. Well, that doesn't uh, so really work for Patrice Cullors or or or, uh, or, or uh, Jones herself. I would have thought, who's who's right, I'm right. thinking coining it right now. Right, it, it's uh, it's a it's a very fringe, far left argument that it's done here. And the problem with Desmond is, you know, I, I go so far as to say that the guy is economically illiterate. Uh, you know, he, he I'm sure he is actually a, a decent scholar of sociology and his own expertise, which is the late 20th century racial relations and and, and modern day uh, 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 group interactions. That, that I'm sure his work on that uh, probably has some sort of academic merit behind it. But she tapped this guy who had never written anything on the history of slavery to write the main chapter on the economics of slavery. And what does he do? He goes to the ideological literature and just parrots back far left-wing talking points that have been discredited among economists uh, who have studied this issue and does so in a very sloppy way. And, and then now it's treated as gospel because it's come from the 1619 Project. Uh, so, for example, I found this uh, early on. One of the claims he starts his article with, he says, uh, if you are working in a business today and you are using Microsoft Excel to do your accounting, uh, you are using a procedure that traces back its origin to the accounting books on the plantations. Uh, and <laughs> you're the big call. Your head, like, this sounds crazy. <laughs> and uh, so, so I start looking into it and I, I pulled out the book that he cited as the source for this claim. It's a, a history of accounting on the plantations by Caitlin Rosenthal called Accounting for Slavery. And in the opening chapter, she says, I want to warn my readers, I am not making the claim that Microsoft Excel derives from the, from the plantation books. And it turns out Matthew Desmond just misread her sentence and transposed the two things. And I, I'm reading this. I'm like, wait, this is your launching point is you misread another source and misrepresented its claims and ran into this ideological argument. I wrote the editor of the New York Times magazine and pointed this out and said, look at the passage, look at what he wrote. This needs a correction. Uh, I mean, there's no more clear-cut case for correction uh, in your paper. If you don't correct this, you are, are not engaged in actual journalism. 
And his, his answer was just to blow me off and say, well, this is just a difference of interpretation. Yes. It's always, it's a, yeah. there's, there's many ways of, there's really many ways of knowing. Uh, is, probably <laughs> right, <laughs> is what he would have said. Mm. So, but, but I would, I would like to know because is there anything positive from the 1619 project? Cause I think that would be really meaningful yeah, yeah. to hear someone who's written the book you've written. Like what, what is, is there any light to this darkness? Right, right. So I I do appreciate the fact that they are, uh, at least from the outset, they were calling for a deeper dive into the understanding of the history and legacy of slavery. Uh, you know, the, the typical high school education in slavery revolves around the American Civil War. Uh, and the right. story is uh, mm. there was slavery. It was bad. Uh, it caused a sectional conflict. And then the Emancipation Proclamation happened and slavery went away. So it's a really superficial narrative that you get in, in high school education. And originally, the 1619 Project was saying, hey, this was an institution that lasted for hundreds of years. Uh, it predates the founding of America. It goes back to colonial times. And there's uh, we don't think of the history of slavery between 1619, when the first slave ship arrives in the English colonies, and 1776, when there's independence. You know, that's a long stretch of time where slavery goes through many iterations and has deep complexities to it. So I think calling on people to study that and include that in the history of slavery, not just the Civil War story, but that deep, long history of slavery uh, is important. Uh, so I think in its ostensible purposes, as they were stated when it was first published, uh, it had a point to it. The problem is it executed on that just as badly, if not worse, than uh, the elements of high school education textbooks that it seemed to be trying to correct. But is it is it is it fair to say that perhaps it was uh, hubris on the on the part of the of the New York Times and its editing editors, and perhaps? Uh, too much ideology and not 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 enough rigor that un, that mm. that undid this this project. I think that's exactly what happened there. They they asked the right questions and they started from a, a point that called attention to those questions. Then the execution was a hundred percent ideological, uh, even to the point. And so so I I looked at all twelve of the original core essays. They've since expanded into a book and added a few essays. But of those twelve essays, there were only two expert historians that they asked. And those expert historians were about 20th century race relations, people that studied the civil rights movement. The entire swath of history from 1619 through the end of the American Civil War in 1865, which is when you know slavery is at its peak. Uh, slavery is the key question. Well, who did they ask to write those questions, uh, those, those sections? Uh, it went to journalists like Nicole Hannah Jones and some of her fellow writers at the, at, uh, the New York Times. And then they asked Matthew Desmond, who's this sociologist that's completely out of his element, uh, like a fish out of water, trying to tackle this complex subject that he does not understand and instead imports ideology. So the main parts of the 1619 Project that deal with slavery were all written by non-experts in slavery. And instead, they just draw on like 2020-era progressive talking points and import them into the past. But but this issue, it, it's such a tinderbox. Like, like slavery is, is possibly the, the, the one of the... The, the most sensitive topics in that you can discuss today wouldn't wouldn't um, the eggheads at the New York Times be better off saying okay this is a closed meeting we need literally 
the greatest historians, not just yes. in America, in the world, in <laughs> exactly. the world, to talk yeah. about this. We need the greatest minds of our time to talk about this. Not, not uh, you know, as what is it, James Carville? People who engage in faculty lounge politics, <laughs> right, right? You know, well, there's the problem. So this hasn't gotten as much attention as I think it should have. But there's a contrast point here. So the 1619 Project came out in 2019 and has been kind of the New York Times' big thing ever since on dealing with slavery. But we, if we go back about a decade ago, it was the 150th anniversary of the American Civil War. The New York Times ran a series called Disunion, and it was like a day-by-day reflection on the Civil War as it played out over uh, between uh, 2011 and 2015 were the, uh, the 150th anniversary dates. And the... Difference between these two series is like night and day. 1619 Project is like this haplessly executed journalistic venture that has a heavy ideological bent. Disunion, just a decade earlier, less than a decade earlier, uh, they draw they drew upon hundreds of historians. They had multiple perspectives about the hotly contested issue. It was an extremely well-done journalistic uh, conveyance of academic knowledge, of, of really deep academic knowledge uh, to the general public uh, that drew upon expertise. It had debates on its pages. It had, uh, uh, you know, back and forth point counterpoint about some of the contested issues. Uh, and I, I mentioned uh, not not to toot my own horn, but I wrote three or four pieces for disunion in the New York Times and my own expertise in slavery. Nicole Hannah Jones even was citing those for a brief moment until she figured out I was the author and then suddenly excised me from uh, uh, her whole narrative. But uh, the way disunion was done, I think, was a good uh, example of how journalism on slavery should be handled. The way the 1619 Project was done, uh, you know, that they did every mistake and error possible in trying to turn it into an ideological narrative. And I think you put the two side by side, the contrast could not be starker. Well, just to put a bow on it, I really think that, you know, uh, the fact that they that no one in those meetings, I'm, you know, obviously looking into a crystal ball here, but no, the fact that no one stood up to uh, Jones and said and treated her with enough respect to say, you know, this is really stupid, what you yep. this idea, and I respect you enough to tell you that, and and if you want to do it properly, we can do it properly. The fact that that never happened, I think, speaks volumes exactly about exactly. the people who pulled it off. Well. Perhaps we'll just we'll start wrapping up. I, I, we've got just two more questions, really, uh, that that are e- much easier to handle. Uh, through your work, you've been uh, fighting back against groupthink, censorship, authoritarianism, and orthodoxy. And you can just read Phil's articles or or, or his books, and this is something that that really goes across all of that. Uh, and it's very even-handed as well. People out there are scared of losing friends and jobs. Uh, do do you have any advice? I mean, this is the people who listen to our podcast. Like they're they they in secret a lot of them as well they, because <laughs> they. Do you have any advice for people you know who are thinking I don't know that they can sit this out, they can wait it out, or they're frightened? You know what 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 can you say about about the fight? Yeah, well, I, I say you know um, uh, speak the truth and and do so unapologetically. Um, it, but doing so is going to get you backlash. Uh, the truth is is penalized in a heavily partisan political environment, and I, I've encountered that directly. I'm in a bit of an odd situation compared to most uh, that come from the academy because, you know, they're worried about uh, uh, am I going up for tenure in a couple of years and are my colleagues going to penalize me because I have the wrong ideological view? 
Um, so, so that's a real problem. The fact that uh, academia as a whole has become more of an echo chamber, there's not a diversity of thought in it. Uh, it, it means that there are serious career penalties if you aren't towing the line. Um, at the same time, you know, I, I, I argue that uh, truth will win out in the long run. Uh, and it tends to, you, you know, if you're doing research and you're speaking and writing and, uh, and discussing these points, not for next month's election, but rather for decades from now to leave a good record, to leave a uh, um, um, solid evidence that uh, contentious points were scrutinized and uh, bad actions such as lockdowns uh, were actually put under the microscope. Uh, you know, you're doing a service for uh, for the distant future, but it's a service that's very important because uh, it's going to leave a legacy that people can reflect back on. Uh, you know, I think 20, 30, 40 years from now, people are going to look back on something like lockdowns or the 1619 Project or any number of other fashionable events from the current day. And they're going to scratch their heads and they're going to wonder, how could humanity have gone through such a disastrous uh, response to the coronavirus? Uh, how, how did uh, we make this blunder of the past? It's going to be looked at uh, as uh, we kind of look back at like the outbreak of World War One today as this horrendous event, this disastrous event, or we look back at the uh, errors of the past. And the only reason that we're able to scrutinize those the way that we do is because someone at the time, probably from a very unpopular vantage point at the time, left a record. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, uh, just a tiny little thing there. I just have to ask you this because I've got you here now. You did a, a modern scholar modern scholar uh, uh, series on uh, we can get it on Audible uh, called the Rules of the Game, uh, which which is fantastic. And I just have to ask you. This is where you and and a, a colleague uh, at different ends of the political spectrum uh, uh, talk about how the government works and everything. Is that something that you think could happen? That kind of project could that happen today? Because I was listening to this and I was like, I think that that to me from 2011 or 2010, yeah, right, right. to it's me, about a decade ago. it seemed like from a long time ago. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, absolutely. It's uh, it's kind of stunning how far that uh, the academy has shifted. Um, you, you know, when I went through graduate school, when I went through and did my college education, I, I would say that the academy was still a it was a left of center place, but it was a reasonable place where you could have those dialogues. Uh, it's really only been in the last 10 to 15 years that as uh, professors of the non-left, I don't even say right-wing professors because this includes everything from moderate to libertarian to anyone that's not hard progressive left, as they've retired, they've been replaced by graduate students that are only of one stripe of the progressive left. And uh, now you have a monolithic echo chamber in many disciplines that just does not have room for that debate. Uh, which I think is a real tragedy. Uh, I, I wonder if the pendulum has swung too far. Is it going to start coming back? Uh, I think eventually, because the public is starting to scrutinize the way that its money is spent in supporting these universities. And, uh, you know, when, when the universities become so far to the left that they are no longer matching the general public's uh, uh, wishes and desires as uh, participatory uh, voters in a democracy, uh, you know, you can't really expect the public to keep funding you. So that's where I think the pressure is going to come from as it reigns in some of the insanity is voters are simply going to vote uh, uh, for policies and results that no longer subsidize higher ed to the level that it currently has. Well, we definitely can't wait for that time. 
that time right. to come. Uh, <laughs> now we're, we're we're very mindful of your time here. You've, you've you've been so generous with your time, but but we have a final question we like to ask all all of our all of our guests, and that is, uh, what are you reading right now? Ooh, what am I reading right now? Uh, so I'm actually looking at the history of um, of the New Deal era. Uh, so I've been digging into. Um, both in, in domestic policy and foreign policy. So critics of the New Deal digging into uh, uh, all the op-eds that were written in the 1930s to respond to the Roosevelt administration. Um, and there, that's you know figures like Albert J. Knott, Garrett Gray. Um, there's a, uh, a great uh, economist by the name of Raymond Moley, who was an insider in the New Deal that turned against it. Uh, so I've been studying that. And then the, uh, the the World War II era and the outbreak of, uh, of totalitarianism across Europe and then eventually the world. Uh, I've been looking at the works of W.E.B. Du Bois, who was the African-American civil rights leader uh, that actually became a bit too friendly with uh, uh, German Nazi ideology and, uh, and Stalinist ideology in the 1930s and saw them both as kind of like a, a path to socialism. So I've been digging into his works of that era to kind of figure out what led this person astray down this path. Uh, you don't have a spy novel to break all that up, or <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's uh, many, many projects at once. Yes, wonderful stuff. Well, thank you so much, uh, Phil, for for talking to us today. And uh, I don't know what to say, but thank you for all the great work you're doing. And um, I look forward to reading uh, your eventual uh, multi-volume work on Fa uh, Dr. Fauci. Absolutely. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> now, Phil, uh, just quickly, how can people find you? Uh, are you on social media? Yeah, yeah. So uh, most of my work is published on AIER.org. Uh, so that's, that's probably the main place to go to. Uh, and, you know, I, I do run commentaries on there and then Twitter's the usual place. So uh, um, I encourage you to yeah, check out what we do, AIER.org. Um, it's more distillations of my academic work, uh, but uh, a good accessible point to, to get into that. Wonderful. Thanks very much, Phil. Yes, thank you. Hoof coronavirus came from overseas, infecting folks across the land, Seattle, NYC. A little bat's virus Love those human cells Next thing you know The cases grow And the world has gone to It's a family show Heck Poof coronavirus Came from overseas Infecting folks across the land Seattle, NYC Poof coronavirus Called COVID-19 Quickly spread like a wildfire, now we're in quarantine. Now no one can travel or even leave their homes. Schools are closed, all kids must know, avoid the danger zones. We all must do our part to protect the ones we love. So if you meet at least six feet and handle doors with gloves, oh poop! came from overseas infecting folks across the land of Seattle NYC poof coronavirus called COVID-19 quickly spread like wildfire now we're in quarantine